Well, good morning, church. We have come to uh, the book of Nahum this morning. You'll find it on page 782 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, as Clint said, my name is Matt Speaks, uh, and I want to welcome you to King's Cross this morning. It's, it's a joy to be a pastoral resident here. And uh, part of my role is that I get to preach one to two times a year, and so it's always great to get passages about woe and destruction. Um, but I do pray that this morning you would leave encountering the glory of God and that you would be filled with his comfort. Can I pray that for you? Father, we ask that you would help us now as we look at your word. Father, would you help us to know that you are in control and that you care about what is right, and so you are our comfort. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Nahum is a book about the judgment of Nineveh, this great capital city in the Assyrian Empire. And 100 years prior to this book being written, there was a different prophet who went to Nineveh. You would know him by the name of Jonah. And Jonah also proclaimed the coming judgment of the Lord, but at that time, Nineveh repented. Here we are 100 years later. Nineveh has returned to her wicked ways, and God promises to destroy them at last. It really is a gruesome book. It's difficult to read at times. Passages like chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 are hard for us to stomach. It says this, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and will make nations look at your nakedness, and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you, and treat you with contempt, and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So this is graphic language, and it's hard to read. The judgment and the wrath of God is on display. But you need to know that that's not all that this book is about. There's much more to Nahum than judgment. So I wonder if you noticed that last little sentence I read there in verse 7 of chapter 3. There was this question asked. To Nineveh, where shall I seek comforters for you? Now that word, comfort, in the original language is the word, catch this, Nahum. Nahum means comfort. And the point here is that there will be none for Nineveh. It will only be judgment and wrath. Yet the name of the man who is delivering this message from the Lord is comfort. 
Why is a man named Comfort delivering such an uncomfortable message? What could possibly be comforting about this book? Well, imagine if you were God's people in Judah and you felt so incredibly small surrounded by the Assyrian Empire. What if we were to enter into the streets of Jerusalem to hear the talk of the town? And what if we ventured across the countryside of this southern kingdom to see what preoccupied Judah's mind? What would we hear? Well, we'd hear about what happened 10 years prior to this when Assyria destroyed the 10 northern tribes of Israel. We'd hear about them conquering Thebes and Egypt. We'd hear about the political, economic, religious power over her victims. And we'd find that people were very afraid because Nineveh was this colossal city with walls that would go for miles and their military would resort to these acts of torture. We'd even see tears on people's cheeks as they mourned the loss of their family and friends because Assyria had obliterated about 50 cities in Judah already. We'd stumble across a very broken, beaten, hopeless Judah. Can you imagine their cries? Who is in control? Does anybody care? Where can we find comfort? Well, now we begin to see why God used a man named Comfort to deliver a message about wrath. The judgment of Nineveh was for the deliverance of Judah. You can see this when God says this in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. We can see it when we read verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. One pastor put it like this, preach Nahum because it offers solid comfort from an uncomfortable God. Who's in control? Does anybody care? Where can we find comfort? Three questions that this book answers. Three questions that we still ask today. Who is in control when unforeseen circumstances enter our lives? When devastating news comes and when the weak are taken advantage of? Who's in control when the church is ridiculed and when Satan's lies seem daunting and when sin is so attractive to us? Are the nations in control? Are the enemies of God in control? When everything seems out of control, who is in control? We've also wondered, does anybody care? Who cares when our systems of justice are unjust and when the poor are exploited? And who cares when the powerful are cruel? Who cares when the people of God are trampled on by the world? Who cares when evil and wicked things have been done to you? And when you've been mistreated, who cares when those with power over you have hurt you? Does anybody care? 
And in all this, we ask, where can we find comfort? Where do we run when surrounded by evil? Where do we go when wickedness is all around? How can we hold on when everything seems unbearable? It's clear that we need a refuge and a stronghold in the day of trouble. We need someone like Nahum to bring us good news of comfort. And so this morning, I pray you leave knowing that God is in control, that God cares, and so God is your comfort. God is in control, God cares, so God is your comfort. Let's address these three questions that Nahum answers for us, beginning with this one. Who is in control? And the resounding answer of this book is that God is in control. This book begins with a beautiful declaration about God because big problems need big answers. And two verses in, Nahum gives us God. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. We see here that God is in control over all things. The psalmist says, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. God decrees and creation does. What about the Assyrians? Does God have control over them too? Sure, God is in control over the wind and the waves, but what about the evil nations that are surrounding his people? Well, I spent this past week just reading Nahum through and through, and something fascinating jumped off the page. That yes, God is in control, but that this theme is most clearly seen because in this book, we have big and powerful God put up against big and powerful Nineveh. So if you want to know, is God control over the nations? Let's see what he's able to do over one of the most powerful nations in the world. Look at what God says in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Notice those words. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. You see, God is promising Nineveh's demise in the midst of their prime. And nobody in Judah would have thought that this was possible because Assyria had been ruling for far too long. It's just the way of life now. Assyria's in control, aren't they? It's just the way it is. Well, God sees them as no threat whatsoever. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. God is in control. 
This theme continues later in the book. If you look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 13, there's a, descript, uh, a description of the destruction of Nineveh in detail. This is what it says. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro, to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh's like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. This is a picture of complete destruction, but the destruction of lions, powerful lions. In Assyria, the kings would often describe themselves in language used to depict lions. And Nineveh was like a safe lion's den for them to live. I mean, this nation and these kings were powerful. They were at the top of the food chain. Everything around them was prey. They fed off of everyone. And then the next verse, verse 13 says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The lion would no longer have a lion's den to run to. They would no longer have any more prey. The hunter would become the hunted. God is in control. So chapter 1 shows us that this nation at full strength would be cut down. Chapter 2 said these lions would become prey. In chapter 3 we have another picture of God's power over this powerful nation. Who is in control is the question we're asking. Big and powerful Nineveh or big and powerful God. Look at verses 8 through 10 in chapter 3. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. These verses recall one of Assyria's greatest achievements when they destroyed Thebes. And Thebes was this powerhouse in its own right, surrounded by water, as we just read, which created a natural barrier that would keep 
the enemies out. And plus, they had all of these powerful allies that would come to their aid. Cush, Egypt, Put, Libya. Who could possibly take Thebes? Well, Assyria did. And this was the height of their power. All of these natural barriers and powerful allies were no match for the Assyrians. Thebes looked like grasshoppers to Assyria. But now God turns the question on them. Are you better than Thebes, he asks? Are you above being destroyed? Do you presume to believe that you are invincible just because you conquered the ones who thought they were? Let's pick up in verse 11 of chapter 3 where God says, You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. In the end, Assyria will be just like the ones they devoured. God promised that all of this destruction would come to pass, and it did. In 612 B.C., Nineveh fell to the Babylonians, and it was completely ransacked and destroyed. This most powerful nation with an incredible capital, known and feared by the world, the empire that seemed like it was in control, was destroyed. In fact, it was so obliterated that even its location was forgotten until discovered in 1842. Who is in control? Big and powerful Nineveh or God? Now this brings God's people comfort. But for a moment, I want us to feel how this should bring humility too. It's possible some of you are living like you're the one who is in control. And you need this message to humble you. Because our tendency is to trust in self. You could be in a position of power, authority, things could be going well for you, your life could feel secure. There's so many areas where the tendency is to trust in ourselves when things are good. We tend to think things are under control because of me and my decisions and my plans and my wisdom. I'm not saying your actions don't impact your circumstances. They certainly do. But Nahum teaches us that our pride also impacts our circumstances. Because at any moment, As we begin to pridefully trust in ourselves as having it all together, God can tear it all apart. So let's turn our prosperity away from pride and into praise. This should give us humility. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, the most prideful thing a person can do is think we have everything under control apart from a relationship with God. Notice that Nineveh was not judged for being powerful. They were judged for being godless. And because of sin, we are godless. 
We're separated from a relationship with God. And it's the epitome of pride to think that we have it all together when we are at odds with the one who ultimately does. The Bible promises one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the difference between doing that now and waiting until then is the difference between life and death. Would you confess him as Lord today? So God being in control, it should humble us. But it should also give his people comfort. Imagine if you're Judah surrounded by the Assyrians and they're at full strength, as God says. No sign of them declining. They are like lions who are devouring everyone around them. They are conquerors of mighty Thebes. And now they're coming after us. They've already taken some of our cities. Assyria seems to be in control. And one thing is for sure, we are not. At any moment, they could use their power to wipe us off the face of the earth. Church, what message do you need in that moment? That God is not in control and he just leaves it up to us. I wonder what trials you face this morning. Because you walked in those doors and perhaps it was all you could do to smile. You sit here now feeling like Judah. There could be persecution. There could be threats from the world around us. Life's circumstances might be surrounding you and leaving you scared and confused. You sit here this morning with pain in your heart or perhaps sickness in your body or facing a battle that won't go away. In that moment, you need a God who is in control. A God who has already won and will ensure that you get the victory if you are his. A God that sees Nineveh as no match for him. So I ask, do you hear the Savior Jesus say, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Christian, you will not suffer forever. And after you've suffered a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is in control. And this brings us comfort. Now, the second question we asked was this. Does anybody care? And once again, Nahum gives us a clear answer. That God cares about what is right. God cares about justice. He cares about fairness. He cares when the poor are oppressed and when women are abused and when populations are targeted. He cares when justice systems fail and judges are corrupt and leaders are cruel and on and on. God cares about what is right because he is righteous and just. But Nineveh was unrighteous and unjust. The Assyrians were known for their cruelty 
And as archaeologists have uncovered more and more about this empire, we've come to learn they truly were the lords of torture. In fact, they would impale their victims under the ribs with large stakes and allow the person's body weight to slowly slide down more and more so the stake would go in deeper and deeper and cause a torturously slow death. They were known to rip off their victim's skin while they were still alive and display it to the people around them. No wonder Nahum 3.1 says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. But things get really sick in chapter 3, verse 10. When we find out that they would capture their enemies like Thebes and they would kill the children. And they would use the men as slaves. I don't know if you noticed it when we read it earlier. It said, yet she, Thebes, became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. So what does God say in response to the cruelty of Nineveh? Does he care? What is his position against injustice? Well, twice throughout the book, we come across this terrifying phrase. The first time it shows up is in chapter 2, verse 13, when God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Can you imagine God looking at you and saying, I am against you? The one who can destroy those who are at full strength. The one who turns lion into prey. The one who makes conquerors look like the ones they conquered. What if he looked you in the eyes and said, I am against you? You see, Nahum refuses to present a one-sided picture of God. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Most of us are good with a patient and powerful God. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And we love the idea of a good God who remembers His people. But what about a wrathful God? Because verse 2 says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yes, God is good. He is patient. He's powerful. He's faithful. But God also has enemies. As verse 3 says, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God is. And it is not at odds with him being good or patient or powerful or faithful. Nahum wasn't confused when he put all of these things together. Nahum was declaring the truth that God is wrathful and that he has enemies. And that truth, church, is for our comfort. And you might wonder how. Well, consider this. Would a good God overlook injustice? Would a patient God have any need of patience if he didn't see sin? 
Would a powerful God who wasn't just be a good God, one with power to punish but refuses to do anything? Would a faithful God allow his people to undergo persecution without punishing the persecutors? What comfort would Judah have if Nahum's message was, I'm sorry that's happening to you, but he's going to do nothing about it? Sure, the uncomfortable reality of God's wrath is uncomfortable. But if you remove it, you no longer have a God to take comfort in. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Wherever there's wrongdoing, he punishes. Where there's evil and wickedness, there's judgment. Because he's just and he cares about what is right. You see, God will not have his name thwarted by some prideful princes and their wagons and sharp sticks. He is going to have his name glorified. And church, we need to know that he hates the injustice that's done to his people. He identifies with his people so much that when he looks at Paul persecuting Christians, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting them? He says, why are you persecuting me? He shares in our sufferings because he cares. And we can have comfort knowing that ultimate justice will be done. But here's the kicker. I sat down with a friend a while back and he was able to easily point to the evils of the world. I mean, it's easy to point to the Assyrians or the Nazis or terrorist groups or mass shooters as evil. Of course, they're guilty. But my friend asked, why doesn't God just go ahead and get rid of all the evil? And so I asked him, have you ever said anything really mean to your wife and made her sad? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, then haven't you contributed to the evil in the world? Would you like God to get rid of you too? The shattering reality of Nahum is that we all deserve the punishment of Nineveh. We're all guilty before a holy God. Psalm 55 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So one of the strange beauties of this book is that it helps us to see the seriousness of sin and the extremes of God's wrath. And if we wrap our minds around those things, we see more clearly what Jesus bore on the cross. God will by no means clear the guilty. And so what is our hope? Our hope is that Jesus, his perfect son, became the guilty in our place. See, God cares about what is right. And so sin will be paid for either by you and me or by Jesus. So just consider the language in this book and then look forward to, towards our hope and just marvel at the good news of Christ. It says in chapter 3, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. We'll lift up your skirts over your face. Make nations look at your nakedness. 
In verse 6, he says, I'll throw filth at you, treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Church, we deserve for God to be against us. And yet Jesus cried out on the cross, my father, why have you forsaken me? We deserve the mockery and for our nakedness to be exposed. Yet Jesus was spit in the face and crowned with thorns and told to get himself down if he truly is the son of God. We deserve to be treated with contempt, with no comforters to help us. Yet Jesus' friends left him to face the cross alone. Our fate doesn't have to be that of Nineveh's because of what Jesus has done. Would you trust in him this morning? So this book does paint a dark but real picture of our sin. And it shows us the wrath that we deserve. But as Christians, we're reminded of the price that Jesus paid. That sinners don't just get off scot-free. But that Jesus must become guilty in our place. So if you can take this book... And through it, you can see the beauty of the cross. You'll know even more that God cares deeply about what is right, even in salvation. God is in control. He cares about what is right. And so God is our comfort. The last question we asked is, where can we find comfort? And we close with it now. This is a difficult book to read. Yet strangely, it was meant for the comfort of Judah. Just look at these verses sprinkled throughout. In chapter 1, verse 15, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. Chapter 2, verse 2 is also filled with comfort. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And of course, Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So, of course, one way to read this is to focus primarily on judgment. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to heed those words when God says, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Those are the most terrifying words in the world. But the other way to read this book is a child of God who knows that God is for you. That God exercises control over your enemies. That he cares about the injustices that are done to the church and to you and in the world. And that he comforts us by defeating sin and death. He indeed has made a complete end of our adversaries, hasn't he? Hebrews 2.14 talks about he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And 2 Timothy 1.10 says, through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we can take comfort in God, who is our divine warrior. We can sing with Paul now that, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting?
We know from Revelation 19 that Jesus will come as a rider on a white horse, as a divine warrior, and that he will destroy his enemies, and as the judge, he will throw death and Hades into the lake of fire. If you are his child, are you not reminded in this book that he is your refuge? So take comfort from an uncomfortable God. That's the only kind of God that could comfort you anyways. Church, he's who you need when the world hates you. He's who you need whenever you are mocked and ridiculed. He's the one you need when someone you love treats you poorly. He's the one you need when depression surrounds you like Assyria with her armies. He's the one you need when Satan and his lies and the flesh are flaring with temptation. He himself is your comfort. God is in control. He cares about what's right. And so God is your comfort. Now, I'm not sure what hit you the hardest this morning. Maybe you were humbled because God is in control and you aren't. Maybe you found hope in that fact because things often seem out of control in your life. Or maybe you were encouraged that God cares about what's right and that he identifies with your suffering. Or maybe you just found out this morning that God cares about what's right and that he won't let the guilty go. And so you need to trust today in your only hope, Jesus Christ, so that he would be for you. Maybe you were encouraged to take comfort in an uncomfortable God because the divine warrior is fighting for you in your day of trouble. No matter what it was that gripped your heart this morning in Nahum, you cannot just let it go in one ear and out the other. You should ponder it, treasure it, and meditate on it until it overflows in praise and proclamation. So that's what we'll ask God to help us do now. Would you pray with me?